morning. Welcome to Don't Be the Artist. I'm Hagen. I'm Dave. I'm Adam. Damn it. <laughs> Did you think Adam was going to do it? I don't know. Sometimes you just expect well, things. Who are you? I'm Jackson, and I'm going to go oh. turn down my mic a little bit. Y'all you riff. son of a bitch. You fucking son of a bitch. Is that, that's Hagen's riffing. I got that from uh, I got that from I mentioned that I'm listening to the uh, the Zach Braff Donald Face on they're doing the Scrubs rewatch podcast and uh, every time they have a guest on uh, Donald Face on does like a super funny like intro voice or he does like an Oprah voice so that's where I got that from I can't take credit for that yes yes you are the sum of all your parts could have taken credit yep. none of us would have said anything yeah. I'm sorry, Adam. I didn't understand that. Can you be a little bit more uh, energetic? No, I'm good. I had a long day. It's okay. The two of us are definitely the most monotone. I think I just project slightly more than you. No, we have uh, we have NPR voice. Ah, that's, you have an NPR voice. I don't. You for sure do. I've heard. I've had a couple people talk to me who have listened to the show before who have said that about you. And it, it, it's very soothing to listen to you talk, uh, even though it happens very little. Maybe that's why it's it's good. I don't know. It's refreshing. <laughs> We're here today, guys. Dave got some new internet. He fixed the internet. I fixed the internet. No more cutting out, hopefully. First, he figured out how to work the gain knob on his microphone, and now he <laughs> understands that working with a 2002 router is not a good idea that just cannot be accurate that cannot be the year you got that router or the year that router came out i'm gonna guess what it looks like is it blue okay so maybe it's not that old no it's it's flat black it like stands up straight it's got like a okay that's a little bit it's a little bit better then it maybe isn't that old we're talking about modems and routers the new one i got has three little antennae so then you know it's Ah, working yeah yeah yeah. Um, if, if, if it truly is from 2002, that's older than what we're talking about today. Green Day's 2004 album, American Idiot. We decided to talk about this because much like, I mean, what kind of took us in the direction of talking about My Chemical Romance when we did that deep dive was just me making the comment that that was the most important rock album most important concept album of the early 2000s when i say that i mean from 2000 to 2010 but i would say and i can confidently say this that the most important album right behind that the second most important album of that time would be american idiot and also you know a little note we mentioned it on the episode both the black parade and american idiot were produced by the same producer rob cavallo who apparently i just figured out while i was doing some light research right before this episode has been a longtime producer of green day that he had only not produced one of their albums before this something like that so they had a long-standing you know relationship with him so before we get into the album and we're gonna just talk in depth we're only talking about american idiot today they have too much of a a large discography and and my kind of you know after this album it gets a little i don't want to listen to all that shit i don't want to listen to uno dos trey i don't know about you guys but i don't want to do that uh, i'm i'm okay with that without listening to those <laughs> <laughs> so american idiot 
is the band's seventh album after being a band for 15 plus years. So when we talk about the legacy of this album, much like a lot of bands like Modest Mouse there and other bands that I can't think of right now, there is this idea, there this new found fan base that came with an album like this and people who didn't even know that, hey, this was a band for 15 plus years, which now looking back on it is pretty crazy to me. The band members at the time were in their early 30s. I believe it was Billy Joe Armstrong, the singer's 32nd birthday, right before they started recording. It was like the day before they started recording. It's probably important. Let's back up just a little bit. So Green Day is primarily a trio. They had a fourth member for a little while, but they are a trio now. Billy Joe Armstrong, Mike Durnt on bass, and then Trey Cool on drums. So they are from the East Bay area of California, and they can be known as punk rock, pop rock. I kind of struggle with that one a little bit, but they definitely inspired it, but definitely punk rock. And then, you know, just alternative rock. I think that's the easiest way. They're just one of those bands that just really easily fits in the pocket of alternative rock, I feel, especially on this album. Yeah, I think most punk rock bands, when they if they have sustained success, they end up going towards the alternative side of it so that they can develop into different lanes. We were talking about that a little bit last week. Yeah, they can learn more than just three chords. I like the uh, the alternative thing especially because the pop punk and punk rock argument between this album is fucking huge of what this album and what they are, what Green Day is, and Billy hates pop punk. So that's another thing that makes it very difficult. Sorry, go on. So American Idiot, we get to after seven this is their seventh album so what led up to the a lot of people know green day for one of two albums it is either dookie which was their major label release which was their third album and then this album american idiot which is their seventh album between then they were right after their major label release of dookie they were releasing all you know they released Insomniac, Nimrod, and then they released Warning, which is the album prior to American Idiot. Warning, although it had a critical acclaim, it did not it was not received well. And they talk about this a lot in the documentary that David and I were watching called Heart Like a Hand Grenade. But they had interviewers saying, like, oh, do you think American Idiot is gonna be like your comeback album? Stuff like that. So Warning had not done well commercially. And then they keep talking about that. And then I looked it up. It was number four, and it sold, I think, to date, a million five thousand copies, which is by no means a failure in my book. But whatever. It was there. It underwhelmed for a major label release at the time. I think their fans, their fans didn't like it, I think. Yeah, so I guess right before... Uh, the album Nimrod had also started leaning them towards this. They were known as a punk band and the album Nimrod right before warning was starting to show, okay, they're getting a little more cleaner. They're experimenting with different genres and styles. And if you know anything about punk, punks can be very elitist. And if you change things up too much, then they start to turn on you. And as Dave mentioned, I think it was in the last episode, Green Day from the get go always had the naysayers in the punk scene that were saying okay there's too much of a pop formula there is too catchy stuff like that whatever it may be whether you know 
and that's okay if you don't like Green Day, but it, the punk elitists can just be assholes in that retrospect, much like metal elitists can be that same way. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's probably where Billy Joel's, Billy Joe's, sorry, I keep calling him Billy Joel, where Billy Joe's disdain for pop punk comes from. Yeah. Even from those early roots where it's like Blink-182 is clearly a pop punk band and they're more or less okay with being labeled that. It's a different thing for Green Day. Yeah, so the album Nimrod started showing signs of this is a different type of, not just a punk band. And then Warning just further cemented that idea. So the fans started to turn on that. What happens after that and what starts giving this idea before we get into the album that Green Day was, what was the mindset they were in? They're in their, you know, it's three guys in their early 30s and then they had just come off what was perceived as an underwhelming album and then right after warning they released a greatest hit compilation which i think for any band that's got to be a weird time period because they even talked about how you know does this mean we are now has-beens are we have we gotten over that hill of okay we've the best stuff is behind us we'll still release albums but will we have that greatest hits album out so that was the album that came out right before this i think a lot of times a label is the the labels are the ones who make that decision to release the greatest hits most of the time when that happens they decide that well the band just released an album we know that they're going to take some time on their next album and they've done well enough commercially that we want to keep the momentum rolling so in the interim of releasing a new album that they're going to take more time on let's release the greatest hits so that we can keep the revenue stream going. Yeah. Four years after that album, Warning, they come out with American Idiot in 2004. Before we dive too far into that, did they not write an entire album, but it got... I read some places that it got lost or stolen. Got stolen. But when I watched the documentary for American Idiot, they didn't mention that specifically, that it got stolen. Yeah, they didn't mention that at all. So that documentary came out in 2015, so I was pretty shocked that they didn't mention it. But what you're referring to, Dave, is they, after everything I just spoke about, they decided we need to shake something up. So they got in a room and started recording. I think they had 20 songs finished and demoed, and they had planned on releasing the album called Cigarettes and Valentines. And then the masters got stolen and they actually have them back now. And if I'm not mistaken, you can listen to it. No, I don't think that. Oh, okay. No, I'm wrong about that. So they actually got the masters returned back to them. I don't know exactly what led to that, but they have the album back in their hands and they apparently look back at it to try and, use some of the ideas that they had on that not necessarily use the actual takes but kind of reincorporate them yeah because they were going really crazy on that they like they wrote like some like polka shit they wrote some really weird stuff on this album that was i mean it, it was i mean it makes sense they were trying to do something different so it makes sense they went crazy and all out and writing some super goofy weird shit but they also said after the after the the copies got stolen or lost that they kind of were like is that really the best that we can do um so that's when they decided to start from scratch instead of trying to fix it which could explain why we have a lot of different instrumentation on this record especially from trey cool because he's the polka player enthusiast right like 
the, there's footage of him playing accordion and making jokes about that. I know he plays tabla and timpani yeah. on this on American Idiot, so it's him trying to be the different influence. Well, it's not even him trying to. It's that they talked about it. It's that they had a thing where they they had a conversation. Billy had called Mike and said, "Do you want the band to be like? Do do you want this band to be anymore? Do you want it to even like exist?" They ended up doing like weekly like sessions where they all talked about their feelings and emotions and i just wish that some kind of monster filmed that too i was um, about to say that oh my god here it comes some kind of monster i Not just again. wish they would have filmed that but it ended up being really positive for them in that they decided to uh respect each other more and they were gonna take trey cool and uh, mike Dern's input more seriously into the process of writing this into into all of it so it, it wasn't just that like he was like Oh, what if I do this? It was they had they had a serious conversation of like how do we feel better about being in this band with this prick Billy. <laughs> he's without a doubt the best songwriter in the band. But, and I mean he's he's a, he's a really prick. but he's a really great songwriter. So let's let's before we move into the album, this will be the last thing before we move into the album. What does everyone feel about Green Day? What kind of relationship do you have with the band? You can talk about it in relation to this album, whatever. I'm, I'll go ahead and start with, obviously, this is the album that got me into them. I was a kid when this came out, like ele- like late elementary school, middle school, and I was absolutely like just balls to the wall into this album. I loved it as a kid. And this, whenever I was learning guitar, because it is catchy punk music this was the stuff that i was learning i remember one of the first songs that i knew all the way through was brain stew by green day which is super easy but i remember just listening to all this stuff and we'll get more in detail with the album and my relationship with it but i was super into them and as i get older i look back and i learn a bit more about you know their bassist and their drummer and i'm like okay these guys are actually like really talented dudes and i like really respect them trey cool is just like this really off the wall dude and can come off really annoying but watching his drum chops he is he does he's not super flashy but he i feel he plays what the music calls for which is really good coming from a drummer who obviously can play really well hagan how do you feel about the band i mean i was indifferent about them most of my life i definitely liked songs but I was never really super into albums or I don't know the overall arc of the band I will say and we'll get into it more that I honestly liked the musical more than I liked the band for a long time the musical had some like I mean it 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 is cringy it is cheesy but uh, the performers are amazing and the way that they arranged the songs for the settings of the musical were really good so I will say that I listened to that soundtrack more than I listened to the band when I was younger. So you're probably more lenient on the album that comes after American Idiot than I am. Well, I I don't have a good answer for that. I I think that I'm going to probably surprise you with everything I have to say today, but overall it's, it, they're, they're they're good. They were good for me before and uh, I liked what I heard, but I was never super duper into it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's always been good. It's always been fine. Sorry, and to flesh out what I was saying about you liking the next album a bit more is they to pad out a full musical runtime, they used tracks from the next album as well as American Idiot. Go ahead, Dave. I remember seeing the music videos that were released alongside Dookie, and then uh, 
right around the time I started was when I started playing bass. So one of my first goals as a bass player was to learn long view, which I think, you know, any bass players that are listening, that's a, that's a pretty good goal if you're of that era and listening to music from that band. And then Nimrod came out and I got pretty into that record, but then didn't really stick with them after that. Even through American Idiot, I had heard some of the songs and knew the words to most of the songs, especially the singles, but even the, you know, the opening track, I knew most of those sections, but the second later half of the album, I didn't really ever hear that. So this was fun. Wait, Dave, you knew the opening track, American Idiot? <laughs> yeah. Ha <laughs> Album. Adam. Um, <laughs> I had listened to Green Day some, but not like, uh, it wasn't like one of my favorite bands. It was more of a lot of friends listened to them. But this album got me into them more and then would revisit their older stuff. And some of the later stuff, which I don't remember anymore, for probably for good reason. So, yeah. Do y'all want to go track by track? Or would y'all like to just, like, get the singles out of the way and then we can talk about everything else? I think we should go track by track, but I've got, so, I've got a few more things I'd like, to, I'd like to say before we go track by track. Did, did you guys read about The Network? Did you guys see about this thing? Okay. No. This is a band that had a feud with Green Day around the same time of American Idiot. There was, like messages coming out statements coming out just saying like fuck each fuck this guy they're pieces of shit so on and so forth the network all wore masks so it was green day the whole time feuding Ah. with green day and they denied it up until about 2016 i think 2015 2016 but they denied it like vehemently like no that's not us that's not us at all we we nope not us so they made up this fake feud i thought that was kind of funny yeah that's really great that that was able to survive at least from 2004 to 2016 yeah i thought it was kind of funny i I think you kind of mentioned it but it's really i I think it's really important to really dive deep into the fact that this in their words is a punk rock opera it's a concept album uh, those three words are very important to me punk rock opera we a concept album with those three words in mind you have to keep you have to remember that yeah, those those words like perfectly describe it. So that's why you have to think about that. Yeah, Hagen's gonna disagree with that. <laughs> we'll talk about it, but I, I will I, I will say that they they listened to a bunch of interesting things to inspire themselves for this. So they listened to rock operas like The Who's Tommy. They listened to a lot of musicals. They got really into Jesus Christ Superstar and West Side Story. And they also got very into a lot of contemporary music of the time because of the ambition that there was was behind it. So they really loved a lot of hip-hop artists. They loved Kanye West. They loved OutKast. They really, really liked that stuff because there was more ambition behind it. The, The quote was, they're kicking rock's ass because there's so much ambition. And so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there was a lot of thought behind what they were doing. There was a lot of uh, clear intention that they wanted this album to be something very, very specific. Well, and I remember re- reading that it was also because they were, they were getting tired of the, like, write an album, release an album, do the album cycle tour. Yes. And bands like Outkast were kind of existing outside of that. They were doing it when they wanted to, which makes sense for them to take influence from that. When you were mentioning before, Hagen, how they had to sit down and talk about what they want to do with the band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Day, or Hagen, I, I don't know if you watched the documentary, The Heart Like a Hand Grenade, but there was a scene where Billy Joe Armstrong is sitting there saying, 
punk rock opera and he's trying to figure out how to say it like yeah. punk rock pra. It was just one of the more cringy parts of that uh, whole documentary. It, but not as cringy as the scene where he's trying to explain that kids should be able to drink as long as they can learn to drink responsibly. <laughs> and yep. as Dave put it so eloquently, he's going to eat those words later in his life. <laughs> he's going to he's going to drink those words later in his life. Oh. Yeah. He's he's talking about how like they should have a glass of water in between each drink. And then I think it's the producer pipes up and he's like, "You know what you do though is you buy a six-pack of tall cans with that have strong alcohol content in them." You drink five of them fast and then save one for the morning, open it up and put it in the fridge. That way it's not carbonated and then you can get rid of the hangover. Yeah. Just, and, and like, I think it, it's the drummer or somebody is just like, oh, really? I haven't thought of that. It's just, it's like listening to, you know, early college kids or high school kids at a party like, oh man, oh, this yeah. is how I do it. Have you heard of Pedialyte? It's just <laughs> painful. <laughs> but getting back to the concept album thought process is the band did talk about with their manager, there was a conversation that Billy Joe Armstrong had with him saying, and his manager said, well, what kind of career do you want to have? And this was early on in Green Day's career and Billy Joe said, you know, I'd like to have something like the Beatles. And of course, you know, what does that mean? But he was thinking, you know, okay, well, I'd like to have our touring years and then like be able to get more experimental and do kind of more what we'd like to after we've proven ourselves, that kind of thing. And kind then, of like a pay the dues sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I think that definitely influenced the idea of getting to a concept record in this album because the Beatles have one of the most famous concept records. And then also they recorded on this album just to get some of the fun facts out of the way because they heard the Beatles did this instead of recording, a lot of people will record drums first, then bass, then guitars. But they heard that the Beatles actually recorded drums, guitars, and then bass. So that's how they recorded this album. So if you watch any of the uh, documentary footage, the very last shot where they're like, oh, this is the last song and the last take on the record, it's the bass player playing through the last song, which is, it's kind of interesting. I don't know really, obviously it's different for everyone, but that's just an interesting little take on that. And then also every, they didn't write it this way, but every single song is recorded as it comes out on the album so the first song recorded was american idiot then jesus of suburbia so on and so forth which you know kind of cool king princess did that recently with her uh debut album with it was a breakup album which kind of showed that you know how she went from being broken up with to how she dealt with it which is kind of cool you would think that a concept album would intentionally maybe record first song to last song you would think Maybe because they have this like kind of scope in mind of how they want it to go. But I mean, it, it, it recording is all over the place. You can do it in however you want to in any order. There's there's not really anything negative to say about how they recorded it or positive. It's just you just get, you, you just get it done. Uh, I will say one negative thing about how they recorded it that Trey Cool used over seventy five snares. Over seventy five yes. snares. That's disgusting. That's fucking awful. That's the worst thing I've heard. I would love to hear, I would love to sit next to him and listen to it and have him call out the snare sounds as they go along. Well, especially almost 20 years later. I mean, that's that's really key is like, do you honestly, 
honestly, can you tell me what the fuck you did? Which of the 75 snares is right there? Can you honestly fucking tell me that? So I have, I have a couple of quotes I want to read, and then we can go into the track. Is that cool with everybody? Yeah, let's do it. So here's a couple uh, Armstrong quotes. For us, American Idiot is about taking those classic rock and roll elements, kicking out the rules, putting more ambition in, and making it current. That quote. Uh, it stuck out to me for a number of reasons. I thought it was very, uh, I don't know. It's 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 somewhat attention seeking until like we're trying we're trying to do a thing, but we're also trying to be very natural when we have like our thing that we are doing. So it's like it's a weird like juxtaposition of concepts to me. The other one that I liked was as soon as you abandon the verse chorus verse chorus bridge song structure, it opens your mind to this different way of writing, where there really are no rules. And that also was a weird one to me because it's like, I mean, I guess coming from a punk world, yeah, that makes sense that that you you do think like that. But I also kind of think, I mean, if you listen to other music like you have been, then you kind of realize that there aren't any rules. I mean, there are, but there aren't. I mean, you're writing music. So, I mean, it, it could just be that he's opening his eyes to everything right now. It could be that in this moment, he's just getting used to everything that's outside of what punk rock and pop punk has been offering. Well, and maybe a better word for rules would have would have been formulas. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because there are winning formulas. That would explain it and make it sound better because otherwise it just sounds like he's like, you know, some friend who just smoked pot for the first time and thought they came to some true original realization because it sounds really <laughs> weird. If he meant <laughs> there formulas. are no rules. Yeah, I uh, just think that we should let our kids learn to smoke pot early like they do in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> They just have to smoke a joint and then smoke a cigarette and then smoke another joint and then right. smoke a cigarette and save a wet, save a wet non-carbonated joint in the fridge. A wet was. non-carbonated <laughs> joint? <laughs> no, yeah, non-menthol. I, I, non-menthol, yeah. Okay, I so I, weed. I have two more quotes and these are, uh, these are for everybody, but they are dedicated to you, Jackson. They are dedicated to you. If you listen, you'll find it is exactly the same arrangement as Wonderwall. They should have the decency to wait until I am dead before stealing my songs. I at least pay the people I steal from that courtesy. They consider themselves to be, and I quote, a kick-ass rock and roll band. They could not be less kick-ass if they tried. Noel Gallagher. What song is are, are they talking about? Boulevard of Broken Dreams. I can kind of see that. Man, I gotta re-listen to That's that That's a now. stretch, but I can kind of see that. One more for you. Fuck right off. I'm not having him. I just don't like his head. Liam Gallagher on Billy Joe Armstrong. <laughs> Potato. <laughs> do you guys do you guys notice that he doesn't have two front teeth? He has one. It's I did a, notice that. It's incredible. That that kind of that really messed me up. Really <laughs> sidetracked, but like when I was watching the documentary, I was like, is he just facing a weird way? And like, like, is his mouth is this an optical illusion? Yeah, like is his mouth sideways or something? Man, this is going to be our longest deep dive episode, and it's about one album. Well, yeah. I'm I'm done with my bullshit now. I'll come back to it later. Okay, I just right. have seven. I have seven quotes. <laughs> <laughs> just seven. What's your favorite Green Day quote? Mine's tattooed on my arm right here. It's right under my heart because it means so much. It's right under my heart. Heart grenade. Yeah, there we go. That's what I was waiting for. All right, track one, <laughs> American Idiot. We got we got 13 tracks to go through. American Idiot, we all fucking know this song. An important thing to note, yes, this is a concept album, but very much it is uh, a, the anti-Bush albums, which that was 
somehow became a subgenre and it was amazing. I was a kid in elementary school being radicalized to say fuck Bush even though I had no clue what I was saying. So fuck Bush. I'd like to I'd like to say that uh uh yes, that is a very very good thing about this album is that it definitely stood like that. This being the first song on the album, I did not know it was a concept album without knowing it's a concept album beforehand. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but to me it screams that again there wasn't clear intention behind like the order and the story and the concept. Now you could argue that like this is maybe the general concept of the story to come and like ideas for the story, but in reality that's not what it is and that's not what they intended it to be. And that's totally fine, but it makes me confused about the concept album thing. That's all. I think this was the first song they wrote that made them realize, oh, hey, we're writing better stuff now, so we should go down this road. And then they figured out that they wanted to make it a concept album. So maybe that's why it's first. And maybe they expanded upon the idea from this song. So it could act as a sort of introduction to the concept itself. I think that's a reasonable like guess for why it's first, because it kind of introduces some of the like core... I don't know themes of the album. So yeah, there's a lot of themes that are that are definitely in it that that come back. Uh, it just it it puts it in a weird place to me that that it's like you want to have a musical or an opera that has a strong prelude that has like things that can like kind of set you up for what's about to happen. And to me, this is like it doesn't set me up in a bad way because it it doesn't. It's a good song, but it doesn't set me up for a story. It doesn't set me up for the concept. It sets me up for a pop punk album. That's going to be good. Right. This could have been a single instead of the first track on the album and like used to promote it, but not actually been on the album. And that would have made more sense. Kind of like a trailer. Right. Yeah. I mean, but looking into the verse lyrics, you can find, in each verse, an idea of a song that happens later in the thing, talking about disenfranchisement, talking about, you know, maybe I'm not a part of the America that I'm seeing in front of me, and then talking about the media, how it's manipulating things. Like, all of those subjects are touched on later on in the record. But that's not the story. They are and, touched on. The story is not that. The story is 100... Like, the, all those topics are 100% touched on, and they're very important, but that's not what the story is. That's not what the concept album is. Right. So let's let's back up real quick and say what the story is. So the story is um, don't give away too much. We got We got We got to tell it as we go, man. Okay, then then let's not do that. So American <laughs> Idiot, American Idiot is hands down the most popular song on this album. It's one of their most popular songs, and like most of the deep dives we talk about, there's always that one song that it's, can you take the context away from it? For me, it is very hard because this is what I see as American Idiot. I don't think of Basket Case. I don't think of stuff like that. I think of American Idiot because it's the album that I got into them as. So I do still like this song. It's a good song. It's super fucking catchy. I also have a great memory of the time that I went to Canada and I bought that Weird Al album that has Canadian Idiot on it. And I remember listening to it in a taxi in Canada and just being like, oh, I feel like an asshole. <laughs> so it was fun. <laughs> so if you uh, want to hear a new version of this, it's called Canadian Idiot. Does anybody have any hot takes on this song or do we want to move on? Uh, I, I've forgotten that they used uh, that slur, the F word. So they use that, that, that's something we should just talk about off the bat, is they talked about that they hoped that this, song, this album would be 
of its time, but also not date itself. And I think overall they succeeded because what they talk about in American Idiot, they don't straight up say, oh, you know, George W. Bush sucks ass. They are talking about things that are still true to this day, if not even more. So I think they succeeded in that. But when we talk about some of the wording that they use, they use the F word, which is, you know, they're not using it as a homophobic slur, but that doesn't change the fact that you probably just shouldn't be saying that in general, even if you're not using it that way. And they're using it kind of casually. Yes. Yeah, they're using both of those casually, rather, so... And they're using it and saying, like, maybe we actually maybe are that. So they're not dejecting it or saying that they don't want to be a part of it and they're being mislabeled. They're saying that maybe that's just where they are. And so the use of it back then was fine, and that's why there wasn't a big uproar over it, much like that. uh, There's another. What's that? I want my MTV. Who is that again? I have no clue. The The Sultans of Swing. They... They used that word in a derogatory sense, so now they can't be played on MTV and they can't be played on radio because of that word, and that's their most popular song. Green yeah. Day didn't have that same ridicule because they used it in a somewhat of a positive sense, but they also stated that they wanted to have that word alongside America to be to to see that juxtaposition be put in a song. Yeah, that was that was what I read is that the whole purpose of it was juxtaposition. It wasn't meant to be like a holy shit, wow, there's that word and uh, and you know Green Day is using that word. It was more of like a let's let's put this in context of of America. Let's put this in context of the fact that this hate speech is existent and so on. So I think that that was more of the intent behind using that word. Um I I, I had to teach this song and i re- like it's really hard to find a clean version uh so i had to like constantly like whenever that part came up i just strummed my guitar super duper loud so my student wouldn't <laughs> I, I, my student was like oh I, I listen to the song all the time like that's cool when we're in the room together we're not hearing that word that's just the way i feel <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah that that is a good thing to talk about that you know they say that i think maybe twice on this album and then they also yep. say the r word which once again, they're not using it in a derogatory sense, but it is there, and it is good to note that it has not dated greatly in that sense, but also it was not meant to be that, but still, there's just something to be aware of if you've never listened to the album since 2004. So let's let's move on to the second track, Jesus of Suburbia. So I'm just going to go ahead and gush about this before anybody can just you know make me feel like shit for it. So if I were to look back on my musical history... And what I'm into now, I can confidently say that this song, Jesus of Suburbia, is probably responsible for me being into progressive music. And I'm not saying that it's progressive in the sense that it is a prog song, but in the sense that it has these movements, which is what I would associate with prog music. Because you can have a song by Cohen Cambria that's only four minutes long, and it still has movements with it. But this is a nine-minute song, and it is hands down my favorite song on the record i think when you tell me oh this punk band using pretty much the same i just learned it on guitar right before this and i was like i've never actually played that song and i was like oh wow they are using the same four chords pretty much this whole song and i was like how do they get this song to sound so different over nine minutes but they're just using yeah it's got to be that but it, it sounds incredible i love every minute of this song and i love the way that they described it in the documentary because they were like oh people are gonna hear this and be like oh they did what and they were saying that they really just see it as not even like this nine minute song they see it as like 
if you were to go to a Ramones set and they just play their song straight through and don't stop. And I was like, that that is a perfect way of explaining this song. I love this song to death. It also, it introduces lyrically the, the subject matter of the concept that we were speaking to earlier, the character. So he starts out by saying, I'm the, I'm the son of rage and love, the Jesus of suburbia. So that's our main character is Jesus of suburbia. Yeah, it's uh, the, the the five movement. The five movements tell the the story of of how we get to the story, which is we have our main character, Jesus of Suburbia. That's our first movement. Movement number two is City of the Damned, and then I Don't Care, and then Dearly Beloved, and then Tales of Another Broken Home. All basically into the concept of this guy is very upset. He hates his hometown. Uh, he's a punk. He's a rebel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and he's gonna go to the big city. That's what he's gonna yeah. do. He feels disenfranchised, and by the end of this song, you are introduced to him, but also you are introduced to his arc that he is leaving his home to get what he thinks is due to him. Yeah. Right. I think they did a really good job of arranging this song, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to hear them writing it, because while the transitions between the sections may seem obvious to some people in hindsight, looking back on it, I do know that, and I think you know most of us know that being in, in a point trying to stitch songs together like that, whether it's for a live show or for actually just writing a song, sometimes that can get really difficult. Where there's almost too many cooks in the kitchen, and so the idea, like not one or the other person can get a clear idea across. But the way that they did it was so clean that is the only way that it works. Imagine if they had instead decided that this should be five different songs. It would yeah. have felt weird. I yeah. think I think that uh, it like all the, all the parts are awesome, and in no way should they be different. Uh, I will say that on my first listen, I list I listened to uh, was was the documentary you're talking about? Is it the live thing where they performed live and they talk in between them? Is that what you're talking about? No, that's Bullet in a Bible, which is the live concert album that they released after this. Okay, so that's that's what I watched. Yeah. It, it, it's fine. Uh, it was good. But so uh, I listened to the album twice, and then I did the live album. And I'll tell you that every time I listened to this song, I was like, "This is fucking great. This is fucking great." Cut to however many minutes later, each time was different. And I'm like, "When? When does the next?" song what what <laughs> are you fucking kidding me and it wasn't bad in no way was i like I- i'm bored because this sucks it just felt unnecessary and unneeded and yeah. uh so the way they wrote this and another song on the album was that they eat they had like these minute 30 second clips these snippets of songs and it was literally them just piecing them together and that's how they got these movements was they were like okay, so I have this, and I have this, so what's what happens if we just go boom? And I'll say that, like, there was a lot of, like, the transitions, like you said, Dave, they, they're they not, like, super clear without knowing them, but they're awesome. There's a lot of really cool, like, when, when it goes to the section in six, it's really awesome. I really dug it. And it, it does set us up really nicely for the story. It is, yeah. it is a, a piece of music that actually tells us, hey, here's the story, here's the concept, and it also, it, like, like you can find other meanings within it. You know, that's the, that's the thing about this album is that you can find a bunch of other things within each song to be like fuck Bush or like I'm disenfranchised or I, you know, you can, you can find a lot of emotion aside from the story, which sometimes means it's a good story. What's really wonderful about this song and just in a historical context is that with a band like green day that 
to this day still plays arenas. That's the type of venues that they play, and they play co- these sports complex. They're still to this day a massive band playing to massive crowds. So you would think when you're on that kind of level, you have to think about, okay, well, we have these three-minute hits. Like, we just need to play 20 to 30 of those hits, and that's it. This song, to this day, is a staple in their set, a nine-minute song. And if you look at a lot of their set lists, it's almost always their second song, which is just a ballsy move of just saying, hey, we are so proud of this. And it's great. It's great that they have a fan base that is primarily – people who also listen to pop music who may not have the attention span for a 20 minute between the buried and me song that they are giving that same courtesy to a nine minute, you know, punk rock prog song that I'm going to call it. But just like between the buried and me, they do get away with it and breaking the song up in sections. So if you, if this instead were, if green day, if we were talking about a different song of theirs where they had, three minutes worth of lyrics and then six minutes worth of jam, it wouldn't be in there at this point. It wouldn't be in their set list. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely like it, it's, it, it sticks out really clearly. I don't, I, I'm uh, going to allow you to use the word prog for this. I don't agree with it, but I, I do think that it, it does stand out and it's a very special thing. Uh, I don't like, I don't like the word prog. I don't like the fact that they use the word movements for this either. I can't, I haven't thought of a better word yet. But it, these aren't movements. Sections. Yeah, they're sections. They're uh, they're they're just they're just they're just other things, other parts of the song. You know, it's to be a movement. Uh, I mean, not to be a movement. I don't want to just put a flat definition. But a lot of times in classical music, when there's movements, they like take a break. Movement number one is done, and we're gonna pause. And then movement number two will begin. And maybe movement number two is very different from movement number one, but it gives the audience a chance to breathe. It kind of gives the story a chance to like sit for a second, and then boom, the next thing happens. And this is just all happening at once. Uh, yeah. And the they describe it as movements, which bothered me just because I don't think they understand where that like really comes from and what that really means. But overall, I think it's a really great song. I, I again, yeah. I I did find myself just like wondering when it was over, but not out of not out of like hatred for the song, but just like really okay okay yeah well i I will definitely agree with you on a later track about that same thing but let's move on to track number three which is also another big single holiday this is a single this is probably the only single that it exceeded my expectations because i listened back to this obviously we know the songs american idiot holiday boulevard of broken dreams wake me up when september ends but this is the only one of those fours that I, four that I listened to, and I was just like, "Damn, this is a fucking killer song. I love it. I love the little bridge section where he's kind of just. It sounds like he's addressing a crowd. So in the story at this point, he, the Jesus of Suburbia, has now left his hometown, and he feels like as if he's on holiday, and he's feeling very triumphant that he is now doing the thing that he said he is, and he is going to succeed, and it's very, you know, just in your face saying okay these are my views this is this is my mission statement really in he in the story he started partying already he's already he's like you said he's on holiday he's he's going for it like he's he's already in the in in the negative here and he's starting to yeah. party pretty hard <laughs> the my favorite part of this song is that little bridge section where it's like the representative from California has the floor that shit and i just remember as 
a kid hearing the first line that he says, and I just think of me as a kid saying this, and what he says is, seek Heil to the president gas man. <laughs> Bombs away is your punishment. And I was just like, imagine my parents listening to that shit coming from in, like an <laughs> elementary school kid. <laughs> I was just like, hell yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> So I really think American Idiot and Holiday are the two most on-the-nose political songs, but they do fit somewhat. This one way more fits within the kind of concept and the story. I didn't realize until listening to this record and reading the lyrics that he even said that. I knew he said Zeke Heil, but I didn't understand the second line of that. And it was like, when I was a kid, if my parents heard that, they would have been like, oh, it must suck to be in America. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so and even in the concert film bullet in a bible i almost said bullet uh with butterfly wings sorry sorry adam the world is not a vampire different so i (laughs) remember in the concert film when he says that he does a salute and it's just like whoa (laughs) maybe that's a bit too far there but he also addresses uh, every city like that, which is really cool. Uh, he yeah. he does it for every single city he's in, which is it's it's great. That's an excellent live tool. Uh, the representative and, from Blank has the floor. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So in the it's, in the video or in the concert there in uh, the UK, so he says the representative from the United Kingdom has the floor. Yeah. So he changes Crap it. Goes wild. Yeah, it's very cool. It's a very cool thing. Yeah. That the, this song is it's very very energetic, fun. It's a fucking banger. It's great. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could write a song like this. So good. Are you guys ready for a game? Yeah. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. I was wondering how you were going to sprinkle that in. How are we doing Adam, Adam, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. Cool. I agreed with your opinion about these last two songs. I didn't have anything to add, really. I mean... You can add yeah and... I mean, I'll add a yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, um, so uh, our game today is Jesus of Suburbia did what? (laughs) So this is questions about the storyline. And I'm going to give you bonus questions about the musical version as well. See if you can get those right. Damn it. Okay, so. I I, I didn't do my homework. I didn't watch that. (laughs) It's okay. Yeah, I'm sure you can figure it out. Okay, so our first question is, who does Jesus of Suburbia meet first? This is on the album. Uh... Tunny, A, Tunny, B, what's her name? C, St. Jimmy, D, Johnny. I think I know it, so I'll go last. Yeah, I'll okay. go second last. Adam. Oh, I'll go first then. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll you, say, do, do you want the options again? Yeah, I think okay, I know a, what I'm going to A, Tunny, who, who, did, who did Jesus of Suburbia meet first? A, Tunny, B, what's her name? C, St. Jimmy, D, Johnny. I'm going to go with B. Okay, Dave? I'm going to go with B. Jackson? I think it's it's Tunny. So Tunny is in the musical. Tunny is okay. not a character. Well, that's what I thought. So in the musical, that's one of his friends who's in the opening scene. Right, but I clarified this was for the album. Okay, so then it is what's her name? It is St. Jimmy. Fuck. Damn it. it. St. Jimmy. I'll drink he- my kombucha. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. So it, it's a good thing to state that between Holiday and they do this a couple times on the record, a couple times on the record, uh, that between Holiday and Boulevard and of a 
Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Sorry, I meant Wonderwall. They have a <laughs> thank a, you. A, a pretty seamless transition. They go into one another, which is something I'm a sucker for. If you do it right, bonus points is when you can actually have the songs be independent of each other, but they can segue into each other as well. And I think these two songs do it well as well as the next two songs. So the next song is Boulevard of Broken Dreams, which is definitely feels like a departure from what you would expect from a punk band. It has that, you know, as a kid, I didn't know that was a guitar. I definitely know it now, but it's a unique guitar sound. And uh, it's a good song. Yeah, uh, it's th- as I said. It, this is it, this is another one of those singles that everyone knows, but I would not really say that it blew my mind yeah, having mean, known the album. It's a catchy song, and that's why it was a good single. But it, I think, it feels a little bit out of place on the album just because we know it as a single. But if it's yeah. but but if it's not, it was not already clear. My main my main focal point in my research and listening to this was the concept album factor. This fits in really well to the concept album factor. So it fits really well as a single, but in the whole arc of the story, it fits really well. I mean, we're talking about he's on high, on holiday. He's fucking having a great time. And then Boulevard of Broken Dreams happens, and it's like he's having, he's, he's having the worst hangover ever. I mean, it's like yeah. this, is, this is him walking through the city that he thought was awesome just being sad. I mean, this, this is – the story doesn't have, like, that many deep levels, but in terms of what the story is doing, this is it. I mean, it's, it's hitting the mark. So this this song is is a really good thing for the story, and it's a great single, and it's a really good song. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's a great single. I I just agree with what Adam was saying that it at these songs that are this big, it's hard to take that context away. But that's a good point, Hagen. I definitely agree with you there too. Yeah, I think thematically it fits, but it just kind of listening to it again, it takes me out of it because I know I recognize that song outside of totally the album as a whole, and so it's harder to get into that. I don't know, mentality about it. That makes sense. Well, and in hearing it again, because I haven't heard it in quite a while, it's a huge recording. It is, yeah. I mean, oh, there's absolutely. so much guitar, and like the production is so well done on this record that I don't even care that a lot of times you can't hear the bass. Dave, they they spent $650,000 making this record. It better sound big. <laughs> that was the thing that Billy Joe Armstrong wanted, though. He wanted this album to yeah, be like, guitar big. He was like, like I want this Les to Pauls be... Les Pauls and Marshalls. Yeah, that was the thing. Sorry, I skipped... Wait, I didn't do my bonus question. Are we done with this song? Can I do my bonus question? Or is there anything yeah, else for the song? I just want to leave this song on... Of all the tracks on this record, this is probably the one track that you would hear at a brunch cafe on some shitty speakers <laughs> in the back this is gonna be on that you know light rock radio right that's very true okay so uh bonus question was what is the name of the town or the city that he goes to in the musical version oh no sorry what is the name of his hometown that's sorry i got it wrong what is the name of his hometown in the musical Seven Eleven, jingle town songland or germany what the fuck? <laughs> I'm just going to say 7-Eleven, because why not? Because there's, there's, there's the thing in Jesus Suburbia where he talks about the the 7-Eleven part. There's yeah, no I'll consequence. There's no consequence for you also. You're not taking a shot. So I'm going to say 7-Eleven. Okay, I'll, Dave I'll says, go along with that, because that sounds like a funny answer. It is Jingle Town. Jingle Town is bitch. the name of his hometown. Well, it's a bonus question, so we're doing half shots. That's fine. That's Broadway, fine. baby. 
So th- this leads us into the fifth song on the record, Are We the Waiting? As I mentioned before, this song, Are We the Waiting, leads into the next track, St. Jimmy, and i just a sucker for that. I like this song. There's not really much to say about it. It's got really huge sounding drums, just kind of sounds like it's in a cavernous studio of that do-do-do-do-do. Like classic rock sounding drums. And I really like the song when you put it in context with the next song. If I were to just, I would probably skip this song if it just came on shuffle. Oh no, this song is, it's, it's a killer anthem. I would have loved to see this in the setting of a single. I would have loved to see how well this would have done, maybe instead of Boulevard of Broken Dreams. I mean, Boulevard of Broken Dreams is a fucking clearly like a, a, a radio hit. But are, are we? This is this is a fucking awesome anthem. This I I, I loved this song. It's it's a bop. It's so it's a bop. good. Um, the, I think so, all the first seven songs on this album could have been all singles in some retrospect. Yeah, yeah. In I some think, respect. I think yeah. this one just this one just owns this one could easily own an audience. You know, that's why I would have loved to see it as a single because I mean it's just so easy to. I mean, it's such a good chant, and in no way does it ever get repetitive. It feels good the whole way through. Uh, in terms of the story, it's like talking about our main character, like being like learning about himself in the city more and it's it, he like is having a really hard time in the city and he's learning about him i mean there's not a lot lyrically but i mean it, it it's hinting towards you know his feelings towards where he is right now in his life in the city specifically it's a you could argue the city is a character if i wanted to get deep into this well and compositionally too you can see that that Billy Joe is not, he's not resting on his laurels of, of typical songwriting melodies, because even though it's a chant, the way that he finishes the lyric is not something you would, if you had to guess, if you heard like the first part where they're chanting, are we, we are, or whatever. Um, and then someone said, here's the lyric. How do you think he's going to sing this end line? You probably wouldn't guess that he sings it the way that he does. And personally, I like that because when you have a formula for them, you know, with this pup, the punk writing, the way that they do it, you could kind of guess how the lines are going to sound melodically, but the way that he finishes this and several other examples on the record, it's, it's different than what he's used to. So I appreciate that from a compositional standpoint. So what exactly is Billy Joe Armstrong's singing accent? It's like, it's like part California, California, like Valley, type and then also or no like california surfer dude but also sounds like it's fake english it's really weird <laughs> i think he he nails like the this this thing where i i, I talk about this a lot with my vocal students where you want to aim for this like almost quote-unquote perfect tone which is how like proper british speak people speak right it's this very like open ahs and all sound right so he nails that while still holding the integrity of his own voice and that's something that is really hard to do i had something that like that was the first thing i noticed and and kara noticed too she watched the the live show with me is that he sounds in his voice is so good he's his voice is unbelievable live he sounds really great he's somewhere between tom DeLong and james hatfield <laughs> I don't, I don't think know. that's what Hagen said. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a little bit. We didn't mention no, trust, aliens trust. or guns. No, <laughs> I know that. I know I'm a bass player. I should know what singers sound like. <laughs> so we move straight in 
Saint Jimmy, and it just like this is like a straightforward, you know, just punk song or rock song, punk song, whatever you want to call it. The going from this, I guess the the these songs work so well together, not just because they go into each other, but they really are two sides of the same coin. Whereas are we the waiting is this really, you know, kind of anthem slow song. And then you get St. Jimmy, which is just super in your face. And yeah. I love that. It, it definitely threw me off the first time, but I, it, it is really cool. Um, I, I definitely, I, I liked St. Jimmy. It was, it was disappointing for me because I liked are we the waiting so much because I felt like we could have gotten more out of that one, but maybe we got just the right amount because it was this anthem thing. Man, the moment in the live show whenever, so it's like uh, they do a one, two, one, two, three, four. Yeah. What they do in the live show is the band goes one, two, and then the crowd goes one, two, three, four, and then they start, and she's like, ooh, chills down my spine. That was so good. Dude, I was so proud of that audience. Cra- well, crazy thing. Uh, I will I will give the band major props for on the live show is that the audience their audience in particular has no time whatsoever they are so <laughs> bad at clapping they are so bad at everything and I can't remember the song off the top of my head but there's a song where it's um it's it's mostly just bass and then kick but the bass is leading it up to, in the whole intro and they're clapping long view yeah is that long view because it, yeah. it, it goes it, it live it goes on forever. They do that a couple times. They they let the bass and the drums yeah. just keep going while Billy Joe addresses the crowd. So really, so, that could be any of the songs. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it was off the top of my head, but so they they have the crowd clapping during the whole thing, and oh my god, is it a nightmare? And I there's no fucking way in hell that Green Day is playing to a click in that documentary. No. There's yeah, no so way they, in hell they didn't have uh in the they didn't in have any ears. Yeah, they didn't have any ears. I was just amazed by that. They, I was I, like, or, or or when they rehearsed the rehearsal footage from the documentary for this album, they didn't have any. They just had monitors and they were facing weird directions as well. I'm pretty sure so, they still don't use in ears. I'm pretty sure that's yeah. a really big problem. Of I saw footage of, of Billy Joe having a kid get up on stage that had earplugs in, and he let he let him play guitar and along with them with the band. But he pulled the kid's earplugs out and was like, "You don't need those." Oh, buddy, <laughs> no, that sucks. That's not a good yeah. move. It was great as you know, being a musician who records. I, I was. It was amazing watching this band record this album because even though they had this huge budget of six hundred fifty thousand dollars, I was like, oh, there was this point where it was for "Are We the Waiting," where uh, Billy Joe is just sitting there playing and he turns around to Trey the drummer and says one more saying like oh we go one more time and I was like oh my god I do that shit I was like this is amazing <laughs> it was it, and I don't mean that as like oh I'm just as you know cool as them but I meant it as like no matter how big you are it seems like there are still these things of like you see the Foo Fighters their rehearsal space is just like any shitty rehearsal space you can dream of which is yeah. great Right, that the larger than life persona gets stripped away a little bit when you watch them record, which I love. They did record to a click, though. Yeah, 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 totally. But the the live show, they 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 do a great job of keeping to the tempos closely to the recording. But it is there there are fluctuations, there are, but it doesn't matter because they end up like nailing the spots they need to nail, and they play together so well. This is the song that introduces Saint Jimmy. This is the song that where we where we meet Saint Jimmy, who represents represents like rebellion, anger. This he likes to do drugs. 
gets our our main character into drugs more and to partying and in this other side of of things that he already like is kind of getting into but yeah it's uh it's a very interesting character it's it, we we're, we're gonna meet another character soon that will be our juxtaposition please remember everyone that this album came out in 2004 and this and My Chemical Romance are solely responsible for Hot Topic attitudes. So when we talk <laughs> about a character who is rebellious, who does drugs, this was quote-unquote original back then. Black nail polish, baby. I would, I would honestly say that, like, the, I mean, originality aside, the, the idea of the, the, the character will meet and then St. Jimmy it's a really great thing for i mean it, it it's clear that it's like billy joe armstrong writing about himself in some regard being the main character but i mean it's it's a very it's a very good battle it's a very clear battle that a lot of people have that i guess that one lyric and one i forget which song it is where he says i'm not fucking justin bieber one fucking minute that that was uh, that was very much about uh, that time that Billy Joe Armstrong was at the iHeartRadio <laughs> Festival <laughs> and had a freakout. Dude, that freak that freakout is gold. That freakout is yeah. so funny. I, I think Mike Dirtz. I think he smashed his bass because Billy Joe was doing it too. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't that really video know is priceless on. because if <laughs> you watch like, watch him the whole time, because he's just like, a, oh yeah, no one minute like. I'd be pissed at that too, but then when he starts smashing the guitar and uh, Mike Durant is like, uh, "I guess me too. I'll do it too." Yeah, <laughs> just, just you, pu- the puzzled look. Does he's, Trey throw his drumsticks? Trying to fit in. I think so. I think he kind of does like a push his drums type thing. I think yeah. I, th- I thought he threw his drumsticks, which uh, is not any different than his normal live performance because he literally is like it, it's a bit for him to throw his drumsticks and he looks to the side like, "Where's my next one?" Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's totally a thing he just does. Yeah. So, St. Jimmy, we got a new character. Now we're going to go into a new song. This, for me, this next song is the seventh song. It's called Give Me Novocaine. This is a more pulled back song before the rest of the album's more straightforward rock songs. I personally love it, but I can see how, to someone, this may be too on the nose or could even be called a boring song. I really like it. It has this cool slide guitar in it. And I would say every song up until this point, as I said, could be a single in its own right. And this is right after this is where the album starts to veer in a different territory for me. So I have a strong relationship with the first, you know, half of this album. This song is, I think it's really good. I think I agree that this could have been a single. It, it's it's a really solid song. Uh, it it honestly doesn't do too much for me musically. Like it's just really good. It's just not. It, it doesn't like. I'm not super stoked on it, but it's good uh, for the story. It's about Saint Jimmy just getting him more into drugs and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's about a really bad path that our main character is about to go down. Feeling lonely in the big city. Loneliness is a really big theme in this song. That definitely speaks volumes to somebody from coming from someone from a, a small town going to a big city right you feel lonely especially being this like rebellious young person i'm sure that loneliness and and drugs are usually one they come together well that that sense of feeling like you've left the thing that was caging you and then you get to the thing that thinks is going to you think is going to liberate you only to find that you feel the loneliness so you end up caging yourself through substances Right. Yeah. 
Hey, hold up. While we're talking about loneliness, hey, Adam, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Is that a new Lego set behind you? No. No. Okay. Sorry. Cool. Sorry to <laughs> We're halfway through this record. I'm kind of with... get new Legos? Well, I haven't built them. They're just sitting there. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know. No, I think I'm kind of with Jackson, though. Like, this kind of... The first half of the album is really great, and then this becomes... I don't know. It it gets a little bit too um, not repetitive, but it it just feels weird compared to the first half of the album, which feels like the whole thing is great, and then it kind of slows down. I don't know. I it, it kind of loses me towards the middle part, and then picks back up at the end, obviously, which is fine. So, if you're not listening closely and you don't know it's a concept album, then it's it's like I think it's really easy to lose that. Then yeah, it's really easy to lose the interest in this record especially after how good the first half it seems to be a bit front-loaded if you're a one-time listener yeah for sure i i'm just gonna go ahead and say it for the next three songs she's a rebel extraordinary girl and letter bomb are where the album really just feels like to meander a bit and it just gets generic territory it's not none of these songs are bad in my opinion but they are very much, it feels kind of like filler, where honestly, okay, so this album is 13 tracks long. I think you could knock off three to four of these songs and have a nine to 10, especially with a track like Jesus of Suburbia and have a solid track list. But, yeah, you know, uh, there are redeeming qualities in She's a Rebel and Extraordinary Girl and Letter Bomb, but overall, they're very forgettable to me. I couldn't sing anything other than the she's a rebel, she's a saint, just because, you know, the title of the song, and then the nobody likes you. Other than that, I'm like, I don't know what these songs are. Well, it, it kind of just adds to the whole, like, runtime of the album and starts to feel like it's long. If no, I mean, it, it's an hour long, but it's not a terribly long album, all things considered, for a concept album and all that, so when you have an hour long record and one of the most popular songs is nine minutes, it's like, okay, the second half gets boring. Right. You can, you can say that without saying anything really negative about the record. And when that like really long song is popular and is on the first half of the record too, it's not even that this, you know, Jesus of suburbia comes up halfway through or something like that. That would be a very different kind of album, but it does start to drag because of that front loadedness, like you were talking about. All the singles are there. Jesus of Suburbia is right there in the front. And the biggest problem with, I, I mean, I agree, you could maybe take three songs out, but we're going to lose the concept. We're going to lose the story because we're in a really key, like not a key part of the story, but things are happening, right? And things weren't really happening. Like Holiday and Boulevard of Broken Dreams are virtually like story-wise splitting that concept up of like, I'm going to the city and now I'm having a good time and now I'm having a bad time. That's two songs. That's not like, that doesn't need to be two songs in terms of a story, right? It's like it's like a you know I was single and your mother was single. We met each other and then a bunch of stuff happened. And now you're here. Yeah, and, and and it's the same with like Are We the Waiting? I love that song, but in terms of the story, it's like he's in the city and he's having a time. It's not really like it's it's not important. But now we're getting important stuff from the story. So like maybe those songs are better. But we now have to deal with the fact that he like they're trying to tell a story. There, there, there is there is intent here. So when you get into she's a rebel, this is the introduction of what's her name. 
of of the love interest of of the girl of the story and she also she's a very she's the other side right so saint jimmy represents like rebellion anger and all this other stuff drugs you know kind of just being free but what's her name represents a lot of like love following your own beliefs having ethics you know just being a good person and so it's this it's this battle for our main character on what to do so she's a rebel introduces that that character which is huge that's that's a that's a very important thing but the other issue is she's a rebel is so uh we'll get to letter bomb but i'll go ahead and just give away that it features uh kathleen hannah singing on it right do you know what band kathleen hannah's in isn't that mindless self-indulgent or no 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 she's in bikini kill bikini ah, kill okay. i am an asshole <laughs> they based she's a rebel off of a bikini girl song called rebel girl it's a little questionable oh it's 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 a little questionable because like there are similarities the tempo is different but like a little bit of like the 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 structure the groove everything is kind of like kind of the same wait so they they based she's a rebel off of uh rebel girl yes which by the way that's the song it goes rebel girl rebel girl and that that's like the yeah i don't know if y'all know that song well i i yeah i i listened to rebel girl because i had read that they had they it was it was based off of it and the name sounded enough and the fact that they featured her i was like is this like an homage situation or is this like a sketchy situation and i still can't decide but yeah she's a rebel is where i'm definitely i agree i'm i'm starting to lose interest in terms of the music but the story starts to get more important well, let's so let's note this right here that all songs are credited to Green Day. There are no external writers noted here. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've only done that. Like, I can't remember what song it is. There's one song they did on some. I can't remember what song, what album. But they got in a lot of trouble for it, and they had to actually give somebody else writing credit. Oh my God! Why didn't we, guys? We didn't do the covers, American Idiot. <laughs> what the fuck they, they've gotten in trouble for like quote-unquote stealing music a couple times and there's one in particular they actually had to give someone credit for th- th- this one is is weird to me it could easily just be that they like kathleen anna and bikini kill that was uh, we'll get to it later never mind we'll get we'll get we'll talk about it when we get to letter bomb let's keep going so we're just gonna go ahead and gloss over she's a rebel extraordinary girl in letter bomb there's as we said so now we're into the 11th song of the album. This is the last of the big singles. It's Wake Me Up When September Ends. A lot of people think this song is about 9-11, but it's actually about, it's actually, you know, about Billy Joe Armstrong's father dying when he was really young. So he even talks about how whenever he sings this song to this day, it's really hard for him and he has to kind of fight back that emotion because he gets really choked up about it. And he said that there are some times where the, so- uh, the crowd will be just giving it back to him and singing the song and he'll just have to kind of like turn around and like just let the tear roll down a bit and then turn around and finish the song, which I don't think that takes away from, you know, if somebody thinks this song is about 9-11, you know, it's, it's just as powerful. It, you know, I don't really think that the fact that this isn't about what most people think it's about takes away from it. And this is a really good song. I'd say probably lives exactly up to my expectation of it just because I still know this song pretty well. 
Yeah, I would say in the in the interest of their legacy, I think you know when all is said and done, I think this will be a longer lasting song than American Idiot. Yeah, and I think rightfully so. Yeah, it's 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 a really good song. I I what I wrote down that it's a really good song. It's a really sad song. I like always remembered liking it. Put it on a different album. How many times have y'all taught this song? Is the real question. Uh, mm. Only a twice, week. yeah, once or twice. But both times, huh. the student, the student was like, "Have you ever heard this song? It's the best song ever." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, what song are you talking about?" They're like, "Wake me up when September ends." And those are the moments where you separate the people who have just started teaching from the people who have been teaching for a while. If you just start teaching, you go, "Hey, I know that song. It's not that good of a song. Do you know about like this song that sounds exactly like this one?" If you've been teaching for long enough, you know that that kid is like bearing their Green Day soul to you. And you, you, you go, yeah, let me hear it. I love that song. <laughs> yeah, right. That's great. You're a good guy, Dave. Good guy, Dave. <laughs> Real quick, I want to do the story, and then I want to do a, a game. You ready? Yes. Okay, so she's a rebel. We went over that with the story. Extraordinary Girl. It's about how uh, what's-her-name and our main character's relationship, their, their, their relationship's not going well. It's very like like the song. It's not going too hot for anybody. Letter Bomb, it, it, again, it's weird having Kathleen Hanna on it, but whatever. It's it's mostly like about what's her name, like leaving the protagonist, like leaving our main character. What's the line? Nobody likes you, right? That's the it's the yeah. It's nobody likes you. They're all out without you having yeah. fun. So that's like the concept is that that that's the that's what's her name talking to our main character. And he feels like he's a failure in himself from this song. So Jesus of Suburbia did what? So at this point in our story, is Jesus of Suburbia dead? A, yes, really? Explain. B, no, what? That's ridiculous. We were just talking about him. I, so I want to say no, but I have a feeling you're going to say yes, and it's because he like overdoses at this point or something. <laughs> And yeah, so I'm just gonna go with yes. You're gonna go with you're gonna go with yes. He is dead. Yes. Okay. Really? Explain. <laughs> Explain. Uh, I'm gonna say no. Adam. I'm gonna also say no. Uh, no one has to take a shot. You're all good. This was a question that is is a thing that I I more. Uh, it's this this conversation that a lot of fans have that um, that Saint Jimmy actually is. Jesus of Suburbia, that he is uh, a figment of his imagination, but there is a concept that St. Jimmy kills Jesus of Suburbia at some point, like his personality, and St. Jimmy becomes like he's in his body, right? So no one's right. No one's wrong. It's all dumb. Uh, Bonus question. Really? Explain. (laughs) Bonus question. In the musical version, does Johnny, who is Jesus of Suburbia, choose drugs, or does he choose what's-her-name? Drugs. 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 Uh, in the end, he chooses what's her name. Oh, shit. Oh, in the end. Is the, one of your bonus questions who plays uh, St. Jimmy on Broadway sometimes? No, I don't want to talk about that. It's Billy Joe Armstrong, guys. <laughs> Occasionally, he would play the character of St. Jimmy, which, by the way, this wasn't something that he just hand, the band just handed over to a Broadway producer, like... They're very involved in it, and I don't know if I already mentioned it on here, but there's a document. There are, like, four fucking 
things you can watch in relation to this album. You can watch the live concert. You can watch the documentary on the album. You can watch the Broadway musical. And then you can also watch the documentary on the musical, which is called Broadway Idiot. So it's just, I only watched two of those four. You can't twist my arm to watch that musical. Did did we mention that they were going to make a movie about this too? No, we didn't. Adam, do you know anything about it? All I know is they were going to, and they never did, but they made a Broadway musical, and that seems weirder to me. Oh, well, in the documentary, they even talk about, they make a joke, and I don't know where this comes from, because I guess when you talk about a rock opera, there's always the idea of like, oh, will this ever be performed or become a movie? And so they all joke saying like, oh, absolutely not. We would do this first. Like, oh, absolutely not. And then the documentary ends with, they ended up making a Broadway musical out of it, uh, the whole band, despite the whole band saying they would. I think it was HBO got the rights for the movie, so I, I don't know if they still have it or what, but it's up in the air. So as they far did as I say know. it's effectively not happening. Oh, they did. Billy Joe okay. Armstrong, oh. at some point, I think it was like in 2016, but recent history, he said, "Oh, oh, in February 2020, Billy Joe Armstrong revealed to NME that plans for the film adaptation." have pretty much been scrapped without much detail as to the reason. I feel like it wouldn't work that well as a movie, just because a lot of this is like the product of its time-ness around George W. Bush and all that. It It's too late now to make a movie, is my thinking. But then again, they did the musical, so I don't know. Well, yeah. you'd ha- you really you really have to lean into the musical side of it because the story on its own it, it it it's interesting, but it's realistically like they added characters. So like I think it's I think it's Extraordinary Girl is a character in the musical. Um, not I think like in the in the album on the album Extraordinary Girl is a song about what's her name, but in in the musical that's like a separate thing because they had to create more characters. If they did a movie, they would either have to really, as you're saying, lean into it, and by that I mean like shot for shot, this is the musical, or yeah. they would have to just completely scrap the musical part of it and just take these characters and make some like gritty, like drugged yeah. out like universe, which honestly there's so many of those. We don't need to see that. No, we don't. Yeah, it yeah. would just be using the Green Day like name and brand, quote unquote, to yeah. sell it. I will say that the the musical, uh, aside from Billy Joe Armstrong being in the cast, sometimes it had a great cast. John Gallagher Jr. playing uh, Johnny, Jesus of Suburbia. He is amazing. He's a great actor. He's a great singer. This plot and him is better than Spring Awakening. Watch Spring Awakening. Listen to Spring Awakening. It's like a very similar, like, sad boy. You know, there's a lot of, like, drugs and sex and things happening in spring awakening and it's like a rock like they have a live band on stage just like the american idiot does so if you really want to check out the american idiot musical check out spring awakening instead and then if you didn't like spring awakening then go check out american idiot yeah or just listen to the album don't even waste your time on that yeah yeah that first for sure yeah so let's move into the two last song incoming another nine minute song this one's longer than jesus of suburbia it's called homecoming which i'll let hagan address all this story beats but i'm just gonna go ahead and say this is another generic one but the only difference is it's nine fucking minutes long (laughs) and where they nailed it on jesus of suburbia i just feel like this blunders there is nothing redeemable for this song for me Whereas the other songs that we were talking about that we call generic, 
there are good parts of them. And this one, I kept looking back and I was just like, damn, what the hell is happening? And then there's a part where Mark, Mike Durnt starts singing. And then there's a part where Trey Cool starts singing. Man, Trey Cool needs to just like, I think if he's not already in therapy, he just needs to go to like therapy just to talk through like, hey man, not everything's a joke. It's okay. You don't always have during that bullet in the uh, bullet in a Bible live thing. He snorts some donut sprinkles. He's always wearing costumes. It's weird. He was wearing like a Canadian Mountie costume while being interviewed for that movie. It's just like, what the hell are you doing, dude? And he's like a little bit sad. Like they in that YouTube video you sent us, that's like the making of. They're like, "What's your favorite song?" He's like, "Jesus of Suburbia," because I get to do like that little drum solo. Like, oh, buddy, buddy. Oh no, yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, it seems like he's the he's the kind of guy that like really bought into the punk attitude because he had a a different upbringing and then just never grew out of it. He needs to yeah. be in a ska band, not a punk accurate. band. That's very true. Yeah. And I can't fault him for it. It's he needs therapy. He needs therapy. <laughs> that boy needs therapy. <laughs> and he's such a talented guy. And this isn't me taking away from that, but they're just his part of that song, Homecoming. It's called Rock and Roll Girlfriend. He's singing this weird voice. It doesn't even sound like he can sing. Mike Dirt can sing, but like what they're doing are like characters, which is like that's for the Broadway show, dude. I know y'all didn't know about that, but that's for the Broadway show. Just like sing it. It sounds yeah. so weird when Trey Cool starts singing. His like section of that song too is so short. It feels like why did you bother doing this? Like that that yeah, whole song kind feels like why did you bother doing this? Because you had another yeah. great nine minute long song already. You're good. Like Adam, it's because they had a conversation about what they would like to do as a band. So he had to have. <laughs> Something fixed in his contract where he had to have at least forty-four seconds of of him singing on each record. Well, so Could Jackson, be. you say that you say sense. that it's a character. It's not a character. It's th- that part of that part of the that's the that's the fourth movement. It's rock and roll girlfriend. This is uh, a short Trey Cool autobi- uh, autobiography. That is how this that's how <laughs> this is described. So this so is, they just veer off. This is like okay. So here, here are the is, movements. Hold on. Is he it, a character in the uh, album? Nope. And it just here, hasn't appeared yet? It is looked apart from the entire story. That So here are the five, <laughs> the the five movements are The Death of St. Jimmy, East 12th Street, Nobody Likes You, Rock and Roll Girlfriend, which is Trey Cool, and then We're Coming Home Again. So Rock and Roll Girlfriend is looked 100% apart from the whole story. It's just a little side thing where Trey Cool got to do a thing about because because he legitimately tells about how he's a drummer he sings about how he's a, it's not in the story it's just says he can sing and he can play guitar but yeah, he's a drummer yeah it's like i'm so sorry man i'm like god that sucks so i mentioned earlier with uh with jesus of suburbia that they like had these 30 second clips and then they put them together this is actually the song where that started i think they wrote homecoming first and then they wrote jesus of jesus suburbia later Oh, that that would explain a lot. Yeah, it, it just illustrates the need for the cutting room floor, which on later albums they should have used. They shouldn't have had three albums, that kind of stuff. Nope. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. If we didn't let drummers write songs, we wouldn't have to deal with Rock and Roll Girlfriend and songs like Yellow Submarine. I'm just <laughs> like... I'm totally good with like, hey guys, here's the movement. No more drummers can write songs. Okay, uh, good. Well, Ringo, yeah. Ringo didn't write Yellow Submarine. 
He sings on it. Okay, he wrote the Octopus's Garden, and that song also sucks. He <laughs> sings on it, but they wrote him that melody and kept it within an octave because that was his range. Ah, uh, I, I have no comment on drummers writing songs. I'm just gonna leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the quote from Armstrong about this song is uh, one day Mike was at the studio and he wrote a 30 second song I don't know I liked it so I wanted to do one too the one I did I connected to his and then Trey did one and he connected it to mine and so on and so forth until we had about 10 minutes it was just purely out of having a good time well then I mean, look at those three cool. songs and ask who should be writing songs <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that's cool if you want to do that but that's not doesn't mean you have to keep it on the just album. have it be a live song. Just yeah. have it be live, or have it be the Best Buy bonus track. That's all you need, baby. I, I like being able to hear about how they composed, uh, how how a concept record is composed, but I don't want to be able to see it in the track listing. Yeah, it's it's weird. This song is just super weird. I I like. I have a lot of weird thoughts about this. It, it, it's more movements that I felt weird about, like I did with Jesus of Suburbia, where there were actually like good moments in Jesus of Suburbia. There were good moments, good like moments in this one, but it was just it, it wasn't the same. In terms of the story, it's like a lot happens. So the first movement is the death of Saint Jimmy. This is a lot of debate for a lot of fans about whether or not it's described as a metaphorical suicide can you i will let one of you guys attempt to explain a metaphorical suicide and then i will explain what i think happened it's just deleting your facebook or at that time (laughs) it's deleting your myspace (laughs) jesus of suburbia is the main character saint jimmy is a part of his personality and he decides that that part of his personality that he's been feeding into isn't relevant anymore so he commits suicide yo yeah but metaphorical that's not, suicide it's not it's not suicide it's becoming a better person because he got left by the girl that he loved and he realized that saint jimmy was the negative part of him and so he just decided i'm gonna be better that's not suicide like that's it's just not that's called growing up yeah exactly so i mean uh, <laughs> there's there's debate on whether saint jimmy is uh suicide or if jesus of suburbia kills him there's, there's a bunch of different debate in that. East 12th Street, that is where Armstrong uh, filed out papers after getting arrested for a DUI. And that's where Jesus was filling out papers at a facility. Uh, it, it's it's just something, it, it's a correlation between their lives. Um, it could be that also Jesus of Suburbia had some, you know, criminal related things. And that's what he was doing up there. If HBO had made that movie, then it would have been criminal things, and that's what he was doing up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody likes you. Pretty obvious what that's about. He's talking to himself. No one likes me. Again, we're coming back to that whole thing that was saying already in um, uh, what song? What song? Uh, Letterbox. Letter- yeah. And by the okay. way, this is the song where Mike Durrant sings, and he just sings no- that what I sang earlier, that nobody likes you, everybody hates you, they're all out having fun. Yeah, so um, so that song is more just uh, just more pushing into our main character that you know he sucks, and then we have rock and roll girlfriend, which as we've said is nothing, and then uh, we're coming home again. So um, this is where kind of things get up to interpretation as to what is actually happening in the story. So I will leave it alone. So I just Adam, where do you sit? Do you think Saint Jimmy's alive? Do you think Jesus of Suburbia is alive? Are you still alive? I don't really care at the point at the end of the album, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. It gets a little bit too, uh, yeah. 
I don't yeah, we got one care. more. We, we got right, one. What's her name? This, so this song, What's Her Name, I don't remember this song at all when I was into the album. But listening back to it, I love it. It's a great closing track. It, I think it wraps up the album really nicely. I think it's a super catchy song. And of all these songs, ex- it, I have to ex- exclude Jesus of Suburbia because that is just like got to be on one of my like top 10 favorite songs of all time. But What's Her Name? Uh, is the one when I've been listening to this this week that I just keep coming back to singing the I wonder how what's her name has been and it, it, it's super like it's subtle and then it becomes a rock song and ends the whole album I think it works really well this is a lot of debate for a lot of fans about whether or not uh, it's described as a metaphorical suicide can you I, I will let one of you guys attempt to explain a metaphorical suicide and then I will explain what I think happened it's just deleting your suburbia. Facebook, or at that time, <laughs> it's deleting your MySpace. <laughs> Jesus of Suburbia is the main character. St. Jimmy is a part of his personality, and he decides that that part of his personality that he's been feeding into isn't relevant anymore, so he commits suicide. Yo, yeah, but Metaphorical that's not, suicide. It's not, it's not suicide. It's becoming a better person because he got left by the girl that he loved and he realized that St. Jimmy was the negative part of him and so he just decided, I'm gonna be better. That's not suicide. Like, that's, it's just not. Um, but so- It's called growing up. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, there's, there's debate on whether St. Jimmy is uh, suicide or if uh, Jesus of Suburbia kills him. There's, there's a bunch of different debate in that. Uh, East 12th Street, um, that is where Armstrong uh, filed out papers after getting arrested for a DUI, uh, and that's where Jesus was filling out papers at a facility. I, it's, it's just something, it, it's a correlation between their lives. Um, it could be that also Jesus of Suburbia had some, you know, criminal-related things, and that's what he was doing up there. Uh, nobody if likes HBO it. had made that movie, then it would have been criminal things, and that's what he was doing up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, nobody likes you. Pretty obvious what that's about. Uh, it's uh, it's you know, he's talking to himself. No one likes me. Again, we're coming back to that whole thing that was saying already in um, uh, what song? What song? Uh, Letterbox. Letter- yeah. And by the uh, way, okay. this is the song where Mike Durrant sings, and he just sings that what I sang earlier that nobody likes you. Everybody hates you. They're all out having fun. Yeah. So, um, so that song is more just, uh, just more pushing into our main character that you know he sucks. Uh, and then we have rock and roll girlfriend, which, as we've said, is nothing. And then uh, we're coming home again. So um, this is where kind of things get up to interpretation as to what is actually happening in the story. So I will leave it alone. So I just, Adam, where do you sit? Do you think St. Jimmy's alive? Do you think Jesus of Suburbia is alive? Are you still alive? I don't really care at the point at the end of the album, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. It gets a little bit too, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, we got one more. We got one more. What's her name? So this song, What's Her Name? I don't remember this song at all when I was into the album. But listening back to it, I love it. It's a great closing track. It, I think it wraps up the album really nicely. I think it's a super catchy song. And of all these songs, ex- it, I have to ex- exclude Jesus of Suburbia because that is just like got to be on one of my like top 10 favorite songs of all time. 
but what's her name uh is the one when i've been listening to this this week that i just keep coming back to singing the i wonder how what's her name has been and it, it, it's super like it's subtle and then it becomes a rock song and ends the whole album i think it works really well i think it's interesting that you didn't like what'd you say you said you didn't like think this was part of the album kind of you didn't remember it in terms of uh listening to it before and i felt the same thing and i kind of did a double take of like did i download some circuit city like deluxe edition thing like because <laughs> i don't remember the song at all and i definitely listened to this album a bunch at the time and so it's kind of weird that i don't know i, I wonder why it's forgettable because it is a good song like because it's it's trey cool's fault he has the the he has the mic before this song and then everyone and then listens just to everything. Goes, ah, fuck it I, yeah, he literally lobotomized everybody with that <laughs> yeah. song. Yeah, and then Adam and I thought we got the Entertain Mart edition of this album. Entertain. I, I, I also legitimately, I thought that Spotify uh, t- took me to like Green Day Radio. I thought See? that's what happened when the song started. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't. You mean I, Pandora? Ha, ha, ha. Uh, I, I don't think it's a good ender. I don't think it's a good closer. Uh, I think it's a fine song, but it, I mean, like, the song be the album beginning going through it i became less interested by the time we got here i was like oh it's over oh okay like i had no i had no real emotion other than like we did it it's done it it didn't feel good it didn't feel good it didn't feel bad but it didn't feel good yeah i i get that it definitely going from a nine minute song to a four minute song that has a pretty you know standard structure i think I definitely understand where you're coming from that it feels weird as an ender that it does kind of just end. There is no, like, it's not super climactic, but when we talk about the story, I think that kind of makes sense that the whole, it, the whole trajectory of the Jesus of suburbia is not to be this climactic thing. Cause the whole story is, you know, he tries this thing, he goes crazy, he meets somebody, he hurts them, they hurt each other. And then, he wants to go back to her, but he realizes, oh, this is a love that's just lost. There's no like happy ending for him in that relationship. So if you want to put it in that frame of view, you can say like, oh, it makes sense that it's kind of truncated the closer. It's all it's also it also finally gives us like the the, the whole concept of the story, which is he's telling us this from his memory, which is why he, right. which is why her name is what's her name. He doesn't remember her right. name. He remembers the heartbreak. He remembers the pain he went through. He remembers all the other shit, but he does not remember her name. That's what I was going to say is it's a, it's a retrospective thing. So he's not, that's why it doesn't have this grandiose ending. Yeah. Like most musicals do. I wouldn't say it has to have a grandiose ending either. It just felt like it just kind of felt like it could have been a better song. I don't know. Yeah, I get that, and I think it just comes back to this album is so front-loaded. Everything except for maybe Wake Me Up When September Ends, and I would argue I do like What's Her Name, but I I do see where you're coming from. Uh, Other than those two tracks, it's just such a front-loaded album. But yeah. yeah. But for for me, when we're talking about what is great about this album, because if you were to look back and, like, you know, tally up the songs that we said were just kind of like, oh, well, we didn't like those so much. You would think like, okay, well, these guys are like, if you're going to put it on a scale of 10, you're probably going to give it like a six out of 10 from what it sounds like. But I think what they do well on this album, they do it so well 
that it makes up for the generic points and it pushes it more towards that, you know, masterpiece status where it's just like it is it's not timeless. There are things that have dated, but overwhelmingly it is there's a reason why I would give it number two right behind the Black Parade in the two thousands. Yeah, I mean like you guys said it in the beginning that this album is like a a you know, as a kid you felt like, yeah, fuck Bush, you know. from the beginning this has been said and that's the thing that i think most fans end up you know enjoying and finding in this is a lot of like political statement a lot of uh disenfranchisement a lot of that sort of stuff the problem is is that this is a concept album and the they they did have intent but the intent is lost in the fact that they have songs and they have sections of songs that are not related to the story and that is just not i mean it's weird that they listened to stuff to get inspiration and still did this. It's weird that they listened to musicals and rock operas and still did a pop rock opera that had points that weren't part of the story. I mean, it, it it's a very odd thing to me. Because, like, overall, I really liked the album, but there was something that was just rubbing me the wrong way. You know, there was something that just hit me. And I, I don't, I, I'm still not sure what it is. The closest thing I got is that. I think their intent on the album is just not clear. And it's just, I mean, I think it's clear, but nothing is coming through. No matter which way I look at it, the only thing that's coming through is that this is like a fuck Bush, you know, this is like a political album. But that. Which I had no clue that this was a concept album whenever I listened to it. I thought right. this was some political statement. I think there are three things in retrospect that make this album as long lasting as it is, is that they have. You have Green Day at a point in their career where they need to do something big to recover from their lack of good exposure on what was that was that a warning? Yeah. So they need to bounce back from that commercial failure, which really wasn't as we were talking about earlier. That's one. Two, musically, they did something different and it sounds really good musically. And then conceptually, it's a concept record, so they actually have a storyline even though they didn't have it run out as the main thing throughout the whole record. We have those instances of the 30 and 40 second things that Trey Cool and Mike Durnt did. American Idiot and and uh, Wake Me Up When September Ends, those are not part of the story also. Well, sure. So with that, I guess that's what I'm pointing to is that you have three of those, those three avenues that aren't done extremely well where one of them fails, the other one could pick up for. Sure. So you you end up with three really good things for that band that give it such a good outcome. I don't know how to fully explain it, but if you look at any one of those three aspects, it doesn't really do much for anything and it wouldn't last this long. But yeah. to have the three of those things that are half baked for lack of a better word that end up creating something better than some of its parts. Yeah, I mean the the music is is really good. I would say that like all the songs that we were saying, you know, we can skip over, gloss over, whatever. I would say those are still good songs. You know, put those songs on a, on a small band's album, and they'll do really good for those for for that small band. You know, these are these are still good songs. It just it just kind of feels like you know where it it the the whole slope and the arc is very confusing to me. But overall, I mean, I, I enjoyed listening to it. I didn't enjoy listening to it three times, but I enjoyed listening to it one time. <laughs> I think if they have time to really buckle down and spend the same amount, I think it was nine months that they spent on this record. I think if they took like maybe a year and a half to really comb through a bunch of great material and write their best record, 
that it would be amazing yeah. if yeah. they went in this direction. Which makes me think that their best work is ahead of them and they're just never going to do it. Yeah. I feel like that's that's really a good way to put it, though, because yeah. there's so much good, like, this could have been a masterpiece, but it's it's not, like, no. on, it's not quite on that level. Um, yeah. Even though it is really good, and it, and for the product of, like, its time, it's it's definitely, like, one of those, like, top two, top three albums of that era, but it's just not, I don't know, not perfect, because the first half is so strong, and the other half is just kind of, eh, you know, it, it's there. Along the lines of what Jackson was saying earlier, it's firmly planted at number two. Like, the Black Parade is number one of that era, and this is number two. Yeah. So let's let's talk about, you know, going into this album, they were trying to shake things up. And let's say, okay, well, did this album, what did this album do for them? And, you know, where did it really kind of put them? So they did state that, I think it was Trey Cool, but maybe Billy Joe was the one who said it, but I think it was Trey Cool. He says, while they're recording the album, he said that they kind of just had this idea of like, oh, we're doing something like different and like we're having a good time and we're hope they hoped people would enjoy it, but they could tell like in their mindset that they were doing something really well and they felt really good about it. And they felt, he said, it felt like they were at their peak so what happened with this album what how successful was it well it was their most it was their first number one charting album and then it was also it marked a comeback a career comeback for them where it has it sold 16 million copies and then it also won them it has been certified six times platinum and then it also has won a grammy award so it definitely brought them back. And then they played these mass, this massive tour. And what was really funny, because people saw this was a political album, their first couple shows on the tour were in like southern states in the U.S., like Texas and places like that. And apparently they were playing venues at like 70% to 80% capacity. And they'd come out and just regularly chant like fuck Bush. And people were like booing them. To which I was like, why are you at a Green Day show booing them for saying that? What did you expect? It's it's the same people who currently are uh, now upset with Rage Against the Machine. It's the same people now who just don't understand what they're actually listening to. Yeah, which was, I remember when uh, Paul Ryan said that he listened to Rage Against the Machine while he worked out, and like Tom Morello was like, nah, go fuck yourself, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that they, in this direction, I think this is the closest they'll ever get to doing something really this good in this direction. Yeah. So... They've peaked on their talent as a group in terms of writing something in terms of like like a concept record. They mm-hmm. just they will never get any better than this. And they didn't come up short commercially, but they came up short in terms of the history of concept records. Yeah, and so this was successful, and then they released that uh, the album, the uh, live album that I was talking about, Bullet in a Bible. And that kind of captures what that tour was like where they played the, that album was recorded over two nights in England and both shows were to a sold out 60,000 person crowd, which is insane. 
and they were super nervous about taking that on and then they ended up taking it and i think it sold out within like three days which is insane when we're talking about a hundred and twenty thousand people in a in the country that they're not native to so i would definitely say that they succeeded and in 2004 2005 i mean like it wasn't like buying tickets online isn't what it is is what it is now today i mean those those people i bet a lot of people were in line at a place to buy those tickets yeah and so after this i think dave put it well that they you know they really have peaked and they probably have released their best album they could do better but chances are they won't the follow-up album came up five years after it's called 21st century breakdown and to me i listened to it just because i was curious and it is very much it feels like an attempt to do this again catch lightning in the bottle and it's just like it it feels weird it did not do it well and then they had the in 2012 they released three albums uno dos trey you heard me right trey not trace so yeah all right cool i'll see you guys later that was awesome (laughs) yeah we're we're not doing those albums yeah no absolutely not being being critical of the band and talking about how well american idiot performed uh compositionally and story-wise is one thing but looking at the overall legacy of green day i think we would all agree that they've done very well for themselves yeah i mean i i also i also think it's really important to say that when we look at uh, they've done well for themselves, and when we look at how they how they might view each album, it doesn't. I mean, they are so fucking full of themselves that they they're they're cool with whatever. I mean, they like. I'm sure that deep inside they have some shit going on. When they talk about themselves and the album and the music, I mean, everything I've heard them say is very like, it's great, it's awesome. I'm like, oh, just stop. Like, just just be don't don't you don't have to do that you don't have to say what you're doing is like a fucking like treasure to punk rock it doesn't help anybody it's it's you know but uh it they 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 have set a legacy for themselves in so many ways and they have worked their asses off so i'm not saying that they don't have a right to be full of themselves because they have put a lot of i mean this is their seventh album i mean that's a lot of no how many bands get to seven albums you know Uh, that's huge very few but I, th- I think the 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 instance of them being very full of themselves about at least this album from what I read, because I read a lot of the same stuff that you did, I think it's when you're in the throes of something that you're recording that you're going out on a limb on and it ends up sounding really good to you, then you're going to be the number one champion for it. You're going to be the person that's like, hey, this sounds great and we're excited for everyone to hear it. Yeah. I... I- I, I, I agree. I, I think that it was the live thing that I watched that really just rubbed me the wrong way of how full right. of themselves they are. It was the live performance that they gave, which I, I was like, yay, it's a show. But then there are moments where I was like, you hired a fourth guitar player, or a fourth member, so you didn't have to do the work. That's all you did. I mean, the solo in American Idiot is easy. It's nothing. Right. And he he doesn't play the solo live. He has the other guy do it. And it's it's just so he can do more performance stuff, which I'm cool with. But it's like I think about that solo and I go, you know, 14-year-olds can play that solo without thinking. So why can't you play the solo that you wrote and do the performance thing? You know, all you're doing is running across the, straight, running, running across the stage playing power chords. Play your solo. Do the same thing. 
it, maybe they were just also kind of like, hey, we need someone to fill out the extra things that we put in because there's like each track probably has like six guitar tracks yeah. on it. And, and I, so, I I agree with that concept. I just wish that that guitar player was playing the rhythm stuff and that Billy Joe Armstrong was playing the lead stuff. I would like to say that that uh, ba- that guitar player that you're mentioning became a member of the band for I think it was like four years and then it has now become a touring member again. Just FYI. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's it, it still is just odd to me in the context of what was happening. Like, it's yeah. it's one of those things where, like, you know, uh, imagine for the Foo Fighters if the keyboard player that was their touring keyboard player that is now a member of the band that, like, writes songs with them. Imagine if he suddenly picked up a guitar and played a solo on one of the songs before he was a member. It's like... Okay, that's kind of cool, but if you're playing the solo on the album and there's three guitar players on stage, why aren't they playing that fucking solo? I don't right, understand. Yeah. I don't get it. It's beyond me. And I mean, again, the performance factor is is awesome because they have a, a killer live performance. But then when it like the way that, the way that like documentary works is they do a song and then it cuts to them taking interview questions, and the way that they talk, it it. it definitely rubs me the wrong way and i i like almost wish i wouldn't have watched it <laughs> because it just like it put me in this mindset of like god fuck this and uh, i've been trying right. really hard to not be so fuck this while we're recording this i mean overall I, th- I think people should watch that documentary though because they do perform so well live the performances are incredible what you're talking about is very definitely i know exactly what you're talking about and i 100 percent agree with you there is that kind of you know like self-grandizing or whatever you want to say but uh they're definitely it's of its time it's can feel like at times watching a jackass you know show where you know these people are just saying things because that's what people thought you should be saying at that time trey cool is wearing a canadian mountie outfit just because he thinks that's the funny thing to do he snorted a donut sprinkle i mean so I definitely, it's of its time, and I don't think that they would act that way now as they are pushing 50, but yeah, yeah. I definitely, I agree with you, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the jackass comparison makes a lot of sense, especially for especially for Trey. I think that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. I think I think Billy Joe Armstrong is his own, he's a front man, he's, he's his own kind of beast, he's his own kind of diva. I mean, he's yeah. he, he sits in his own world, and that's, you know, that's him. Yeah. They really bought into the success, and I agree with what Dave was saying, is like, how often, I mean, everything I've released as a musician, I've been proud of. I imagine it's the same way for Green Day. Probably a majority, if not all of their music, they're like, hey, this is like, we're really happy, we're putting this out there. But how often does the public agree with you? And that's got to be one of the best feelings in the world is releasing something that you're so proud of and then people saying oh wow you're so right and that's got to just be like oh my god somebody gets it like even at that level it makes me think of two things one is that their their fans while some of them grew with them and grew old with them they've acquired a lot of new fans when they released american idiot so they have those that new generation of fans growing with them that's one two is that they are putting their lives into this Billy Joe and Trey Cool, they both dropped out of high school. They toured when Mike Durant finished high school. 
yeah. the day after he graduated from high school, they went on tour. So everything that they do as a band is a reflection of their life because it is their life. So of course they're going to look back on it in some sort of okayness. If and then you put fame and spotlight in front of it, they're okay with it because it is their life and they're successful at it. Dave, yeah. you're definitely right. Mike Durant was talking about, "Hey, we released American Idiot and there were some people who came along and that regained their trust of those fans who didn't like Warning, but then also he said there would be younger faces that were showing up because of American Idiot and then they would play a song like Longview and they could see that in the faces that people were like, oh, what is this? This is really cool. And he said, not that Dookie was a bad record or like they were trying to get out of that shadow, but he said, you know, at that moment when they started seeing people hear Basket Case and Longview and not know the songs, he said, oh my God, we've done it. We are out of the shadow of Dookie. There's a lot of reasons for how a band like that can get to a point to where they like, you know, they act so, you know, in the way that they do. Um, I, I, it, it just, it's so easy for it to rub you the wrong way and not, you know, especially like coming into this as a thing of like, I'm watching a documentary, you know, this is a live show, but it's also a documentary. They're interviewing them and the way they talk about themselves, it, it just, it's something that I, I really just don't think there's room for in music personally and any art to just, to just call yourself the best. It just doesn't call, I mean, calling people the best at things in an art is like you're, you're causing danger and harm and hurt to other people. And you're also putting yourself and putting the people around you. Even if I said, Dave, if I said you're the best bass player I know, like, I, I, I feel like maybe that's true. Maybe I would say that, but I don't think I ever really would because that's like, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous way of thinking and talking. Yeah. I mean, you can have that in, you know, we see, we hear Dave Grohl say that Taylor Hawkins is the best drummer in the world. Yeah. And that's just upsetting. And it's upsetting, but it, like for, from a certain standpoint, he says that because he's advertising for his drummer, for his best friend. Yeah, and he loves him. Yeah, exactly. So I, mean, I can see that. Yeah. But I agree with you that anyone who legitimately, like, seriously says that I'm the best at something, I am immediately, as a critical listener and as a trained musician, saying, fuck you, you're wrong. Because even if you are at the top, you're not right. Yeah. It's so subjective. Yeah, and, and, and they, they say stuff like that in the documentary. But all that being said, I mean, it's it's hard when you're in that spotlight and when you have had years of you know success and then no success. I mean, being in control and understanding of your emotions and how you feel in every situation, that's hard. That's really fucking hard. So it, it, it's, it, in that moment when I watched it, I was like, fuck this. But, I, you know, looking back on it, you know, from yesterday, uh, I, can, I can see, like, oh, it's, you know, it – it comes from a different place. And the jackass comparison, the time that it comes, that was, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense too for Trey. Cause Trey, I, I, I literally, you said earlier, you were like, God, he's like, he might be annoying. And that was literally how I felt while I was watching. I was like, I would not want to hang out with this guy. I would definitely not want to hang out with Trey cool. That would suck. And, and another comparison for the jackass stuff is that most of them sobered up when they got older. Yeah. Yeah. That too. 100%. Yeah, that's <laughs> so let's wrap this up with, would you recommend this? I'm going to say that I definitely would recommend listening to American idiot. And if you don't really feel like doing that, I would just say, Hey, you don't need to revisit the singles. They're all pretty much the same except for holiday. I think that's a little better than people remember. If you have the time, exit the singles and just listen to Jesus of suburbia. That is green day's best song. Hands down hands down 
Yeah, I would, I would say I would suggest this album to people for sure. I would suggest it in a lot of different cases. Most people I know would have heard the singles, but I would say just give the full album a chance because it is a really good album. I'm, I'm going to be probably the one, the one out of the four of us that disagrees with putting it number two for the 2000s. But I, I would say it's still really important and it's a really good album and you should listen to it if you haven't listened to it front to back. Number two in terms of concept records. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. yeah. I would say concept and rock records personally, but yes. Yeah. I wouldn't go the con I wouldn't go records in general. That I wouldn't go that far, but concept records, yeah. Uh, I would suggest it to people that are learning about that are budding musicians who are getting into writing long form things that aren't just riffs. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a couple good examples of where that works really well and then there's an example of where it doesn't. So I think that's a it's a good album for that in that regard. I mean, I think it'd be weird not to recommend this album just because of how significant it is for that era, but yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Let me take us right. out. Are you ready? I'm going to take you out. Yeah. Do All it. Right. I just want to point out that this podcast is officially twice as long as the album. We just hit that. that <laughs> <hard>. <laughs> so good job, everybody. We did it. I, I was right. so worried about getting this, you know, filling in. At least to an hour for this. Episode. Yeah. And then I realized as soon as we got actually got to talking the album, I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> hey, that's what you get. That's what you get when we start doing research. Yeah. I'm I'm so ready to uh to, to jump off my roof. So here is here's your final <laughs> Jesus of Suburbia did what? So I'm gonna take a shot anyway. Even though it's unclear what is the most agreed upon ending for the story. Uh, I'm going to give you four options. There is one answer for this question, and then bonus points if you get the answer to how the musical ends. Okay? So A, he goes to his hometown. B, he goes to jail, and he kills himself in jail. C, keeps doing drugs, ODs, trying to see what's-her-name before he dies. Four, he gets sober, gets an office job, and has hope to get what's-her-name back. ABC four. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's ahead, that Jackson. uh that's that indie um movie producer, right? A C four, right Adam? <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna say one. Uh should I do it again or <laughs> No, I think <laughs> I think it's a. the last one where you said uh the office job and gains hope. Okay, Dave, your answer is same as jackson's because i know that okay go ahead your, your answer your answer is the last one yeah adam yeah sure anybody have any guesses for the musical ends probably see um overdose. they sing good riddance <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they actually, get the intro right i think they actually do good riddance during the bow any so see, adam you said c for the for the musical yeah i don't know that sounds right. Dave Jackson for the musical, any guesses? Overdose. He, he, yeah, he overdoses. For the album, it, the answer is A, he goes to his hometown. For the musical, he gets sober, gets an office job, and has hope to get What's-Her-Name back. Oh, man, I got it backwards. Well, I did think that it was A, that he goes home, because I knew he went home, but I didn't know if he then tried to get What's-Her-Name back, and that's why he was reflectively talking about the person who he couldn't remember the name of the way the album ends it implies that now again it's it's vague and it's up for debate on whether or not like they intentionally wrote an ending any 
the way it, it the way it kind of ends is that he goes home and then he is uh, reminiscing about what's her name trying to remember and so on and so forth so yeah so right. that's the end of the album not not the co-host of this podcast but the end of uh, american idiot yay <laughs> thanks for listening and thanks for listening don't forget to teach your kids how to drink responsibly like they do in <laughs> Europe and make sure you go snort some sprinkles and just talk nonstop and make sure everything's a joke. You know, men and women both love that shit when you can <laughs> not be serious ever. They love it. Don't feed the artists and representatives of don't feed the artists. Don't condone the statements that Jackson Russo just said at the end of this episode. Please don't pay any to <laughs> I wish I could keep that going. <laughs>